So years ago, and it may be obvious, sometimes this was years ago, I joined a gym. And so I was offered a free session of personal training. And I, I accepted this trial run to have this trainer focus on telling me how to exercise. Now, I think is personal training uh, should be a purposeful event, right? Wherein an expert focuses on reshaping you. Even if it would be easier, you would be disappointed, you should be disappointed, if you purchased personal training, but were never changed by it. Right? Rather, your trainer became less motivated in the process, and now preferred sitting around a bit more. Right? You participate in this activity so that the expert works, not to confirm you in your, in your present condition, but to make you more like them, motivated for good health, reshaped in better fitness, right? And our point is that Christian worship operates so much like that. Worship has a purpose, but not to give us all of our preferences, nor confirm us as we are presently. The, the personal purpose of, of gathering to worship God, since the ultimate purpose, right, is to glorify the Lord who deserves it, the personal purpose is to be remade increasingly after Christ's image. When we encounter the Lord in his appointed means of grace, and this purpose explains why God is the one who determines the content of our worship services. We, we don't set our exercise regime and personal training, but we leave it to the expert who knows how to reshape us. And likewise, God, who established worship's intended effect to reshape who we are, He sets how we worship. And thus worship must be stamped with God's character rather than our own. In 1 Corinthians 14, 26-40, Paul confronted a reversal of that relationship. We have seen how the Corinthian church ruined their corporate worship, focusing it on personal prestige, prominence, and experience rather than building up the church. This, this letter addressed divisions about various matters, worship being a key problem, that was furthering those divisions. Christians still divide at least as much as the Corinthians uh, about worship, making this a fundamentally crucial issue. Believers regular, let regularly argue over types of music, worship style, the pastor's clothes, and all sorts of things driven by preference. Right? The trouble is insistence on our preferences shouldn't mark Christians. I want to go ahead and load this with extra significance that's perhaps wider than just the things we do here in these moments. Carl Truman's uh, book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, traces intellectual developments over the past few centuries that have essentially made the LGBT movement, especially the transgender aspect, possible intellectually in today's society. And and one of his main points was that several key philosophers over the last centuries, quote, 
effectively stripped away the supernatural foundations for both human identity and for morality, leaving the latter, catch this, a matter of mere taste and manipulative power games. End quote. I suggest to us tonight that Christians' inability, however significant it may be, which is varied, Christians' inability to speak forcefully about our day's key moral issues owes, at least in part, it's not entire, but owes in part to how so many churches have given people their taste in worship rather than holding fast to the Scripture's pattern. God designed that pattern to change us, but indulging our preferences as the basis of gathered worship leads us to believe that God is supposed to be shaped by who we are and what we like rather than the other way around. Is Worship must be ordered to reflect God's character and shape into it. Worship must be ordered to reflect God's character and shape us into it. We're going to think about this in three points together. God's character, God's commands, and our comfort. God's character, God's commands, and our comfort. So first, let's think together about God's character. Now, I do realize that our main idea that I've outlined here <laughs> carries a lot of theological and ethical weight. Right? And so, one of the key questions that we have to ask, because we're biblical is where does our text provide that, ground that? Chapter 14's first section corrected a misunderstanding about the purpose of manifesting itself in misusing gifts in worship. So having, having laid out the problem with their practice, the next big question Paul knows is coming down the pipeline is, well, then what are we supposed to do? If we've got it all wrong, what's the right? And so Paul asked the question, right? Verse 26. What then, brothers? Namely, what are, what are, is supposed to happen in worship? What are the right things? And so the big picture, right? Let's, let's get a handle on everything happening here. The big picture is that verses 26 to 32 answer that question. What's, what's the things that's supposed to happen? How's it supposed to be done? We've done it wrong. 26 to 32 answer that. Particularly how to order spiritual gifts in worship. But the big payoff, Right? So that's the answer. The big payoff is in verse 3, which is all one sentence, and, and grounds provides the rationale for the entirety of that big long answer. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Right? Uh, now I've emphasized that this is, this is marked as one verse, because even though our ESV splits it into two sentences, it belongs together. And, right, why is this important? Because a lot of times things like this, kind of technical things, I just leave them to the side. Why is this one? Because God's character as the author of peace, rather than confusion, unless he is judging sin, must be present in all true churches. Now, what's kind of the concession? Well, okay, so we, we thought about even last week how he brought confusion at Babel, didn't he? But did so as judgment upon the people's rebellion against his glory. And so when people seek their glory, their prestige, their preferences, like what was happening in Corinth, then God will send confusion 
as judgment, not as a feature of worship. But God designed worship for the opposite of confusion. And we see how that manifests his character. When God created the universe, what did he do? He the world that was formerly formless and void, brought order, brought peace, but there was chaos. When God sent his spirit upon the church at Pentecost, he reunited, divided people, bringing peace between Christians who spoke different languages. God authors order, blessing those who belong to him with understanding of him and designing. And that, that's the point, the, the practical point, really, of, of verses 26 to 32. That corporate worship must be orderly. There shouldn't be chaos. Clearly, even, even prophecy had to be controlled and ordered, right? Because as verse 29 and 30 tell us, Right? The prophet started and stopped their prophecy in a controlled way. Right? Their prophetic gift was subject to their own spirit, right? Indicating this gift was contrary to a lot of people's beliefs. Indicating that this gift was not about spontaneous revelations or spontaneous promptings from God at unexpected times. If you can start and stop when you decide, it's an orderly controlled thing. Now, here's the thing. I, I've argued for you that these gifts have ceased. And so I, I really don't think that we need to examine every detail of, of this little part that we've mentioned so far. Since the main point that still applies is really that the service must proceed in an orderly way. Precisely because these miraculous gifts have ceased, removing channels of new revelation from our services, we, that's why we don't, one of the questions that I anticipate coming, that's why we don't have multiple people performing these duties, sort of coming up and saying what they, they wish. Rather, in this age of the church, ordained officers lead worship, pattern God's word. Delivering things, reflecting upon God's inspired word. The, and yet, right in all of this, the crystal clear point of verse 33, God is not a God of confusion but of peace, indicates that worship must manifest God's character. It must, God's character is a ground, a fundamental aspect of what drives our worship. Nece- worship necessarily ordered to show aspects of who God is. And so let's think about our second point, God's commands. Features of our worship can't be randomly selected or disconnected from, from patterns in the Christian tradition. That's, that's the point I want to make. We, we don't try to do things our own way, just as we would make it up. We reflect on God's word. And we reflect on the good heritage of the Christian tradition about how to worship. How, how do we see that we must draw worship practices not only outside ourselves as individuals, but also from outside just our congregation and what we might like? Well, again, in verse 33, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And then the part that I've underlined for you, that is one, one aspect of this verse, is that as in all the churches of the saints... Purely worshiping churches, then, we see, share some sort 
of unity, uniformity. There is some sort of uniformity among purely worshiping churches. Now, let's think carefully about this together. Because we saw earlier in this letter, that, and we, we emphasized early, or in this letter back in, in chapter 11, and in verse, uh, and sorry, and in chapter 12, that customs do vary among the churches in different places. That's a biblical point, right? Even concerning things like the circumstances of administering the Lord's Supper, or, or as in chapter 11, married women's head coverings. These are, Paul explicitly talks about these things as customs that can be changed. So uniformity is not absolute, as if services must be absolutely identical in every congregation. But, but there are biblical principles that must guide every church where saints, where true Christians attend. Now the basic guiding rule for good worship that we use is that we do in our services only what is commanded in Scripture. The other way around, we do not do anything that is not commanded in Scripture. We call this rule the regulative principle of worship, if you want the catchphrase for it. So do things we want, just in terms of our preferences, but the things as in Acts 2.42 said, the teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, namely the Lord's house, we focus on a specific set of elements. There must be biblical support for every part parts relate to one another. And as for this text possibly controversial, right? That prince that principle, and I think we need to understand this, right? That principle is why women may not hold church office. Because God commands how things go in the church. So let's let's think carefully about this too. The claim the claim is not the claim is not that women have no gifts or abilities, nor is the claim that they are inferior to men. That is not the claim. Indeed, one commentator has helpfully noted that first century Jews thought it was a sin to teach women. And so Paul's instruction to ensure that they can learn, well, that actually assigned great value to Christian women. So, then, the point is, the point is that when someone asks you to house sit for them, you don't rearrange the furniture while they're gone, Right? Christ has left us as the stewards of his house, of his church. And so we follow his commands about how the church is supposed to be rather than rearranging his furniture until he returns. As Paul noted in verse 37, those who should lead worship must acknowledge the Lord's commands. It's, so worship, leading worship, guiding worship is not, is not a task for the creative or the innovative but for the submissive, God's commands must worship. The Bible defines our services. Now bring to our final point, our comfort. So we've, we've pulled two principles from this text so far. Namely that worship must be ordered according to God's character and God's commands. Those are our two principles, character and commands. And now... Even, even committed Christians sometimes react that this sounds really restrictive. 
And so, so this point is really about unpacking the benefits of ordering our services this way, right? The, why this is good for us. Not just what we need to do, but why this helps, right? And we're basing this really in verse 40. But all things should be done decently and in order. Now that command just repeats, really, in a, in a practical instruction that worship must be ordered to show that God is the author of peace rather than confusion. And it's good that we have direction. So, so we're underlining this good aspect. It's good that we have direction for worship because we so often don't know what's good for ourselves, right? We, we accept that principle as Christian. We cannot measure worship by, by what we want, nor just by what moves us as we are, nor even by what we think is, is just most pragmatically useful, since, since our desires and inclinations are so often sinfully disordered. Worship after what we want promotes that disordered condition rather than reordering us to be more like God's character. So worship is, is not indulge, but reshape us. It's not meant to indulge, but reshape us. There, there is a real sense. I think this is so important and not something we like. There, there's a real sense in which aspects of our worship, at least for a time, to some degree, should grate right against what we want. Worship is supposed to grind against our rough edges for our sanctification. If we like everything that happens, either we're perfectly sanctified, which isn't the case, or something is off with our worship. It is an encounter with God in worship that, that shapes us to be like Him rather than confirms in what we already prefer. Scripture's patterns of worship are good for us because by directing us to something better than ourselves, namely God and his character, we are remade from what we are. We inevitably forget these, these crucial things, these crucial aspects of worship when entertainment and emotions drive what we do in our services. And so I think here is where we have to circle back to today's prominent ethical issues. That wasn't a passing remark, just to get your attention. We need to come right back to this, because as we circle back to thinking about these things that are all over the place for us, we remember that the culture falls to pieces around us because because people think that morality is simply about uninhibited preferences, matters of taste. The culture is disintegrating because people believe that nothing should stand in front of them, between them, and whatever they desire. Right? And, and as obstacles are removed from that, the sinful heart has infinite capacity to invent new ways to rebel against our God. Sadly, I think this is really true, although it's hard to say. Sadly, I think one contributing factor to this this way of thinking about morality is that Western churches have shaped worship around what people want rather than around God's Word. Churches 
fill services with games and skits and dances and special music, even though they are the first to cry out about why the world has grown so wicked, and yet part of the answer is that our worship has turned to garbage. We have to reckon with, with the problem that our patterns of worship do shape people as God designed it to do. If our, if our worship strokes our desires for self-centered preferences, then it programs us to believe that God exists for the same reason. So worship must be ordered to point us away from self-centered interests and away from getting everything we want, but toward the greatness of God and towards being rewired into His character. In our cultural moment, Christians so frequently wonder what to do. And even though it doesn't cohere, even though it doesn't cohere with human wisdom, even though it doesn't make sense, Exactly to the human mind. But as culture crumbles, we need a biblical liturgy that reprograms us to know God, to learn the, the rhythms of the Christian life and submit to the Lord. God mysteriously but powerfully works through his ordinary means of grace to bring comfort and develop holiness in his people, making it essential that we commit ourselves to biblical, reverent worship. Worship isn't supposed to entertain, but display God's greatness and teach the way that we are to walk with Him. So maybe you've wondered about, right? We Everybody has an order of service. Maybe you've wondered about the rationale for, for spelling out certain items in our order of service so specifically. As we've come to do, right? What's up with this call to confession thing and this assurance of pardon? Why, why name our prayers and name our songs? Because decently ordered worship is good for our hearts. Our sin and inclined souls do not default to praise God, confess sin, or trust the gospel. Those are not the habits that are there naturally. And so, so we structure our worship explicitly to train our hearts to develop these patterns, not just individual things, patterns. We invoke God's presence in prayer and we adore Him. Since through, And then since because throughout the Scripture those entering God's presence repent on their faces after adoring God in prayer and song, we confess our sins in a focused manner. Because that's the pattern we see in Scripture. And then we should be renewed in the Gospel through some assurance of the forgiveness of our sins and through some reflection upon the promises of God's Word. So worship is meant to train us in patterns, habits of the Christian life. Even sung praise, right, is not primarily for my moving personal experience, but for building up others in the assembly. Ephesians... Ephesians 5, 18 to 19 commands, be filled with the Spirit. And you want to ask how, right? Be filled with the Spirit by addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and by singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. We sing, did you catch it? 
by addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We sing not to ourselves, not for ourselves, but to each other. You're addressing each other as you sing, which is the way that we are filled with the Spirit. So the point is that the structure of our worship is not arbitrary, but develops the motions or the, the reflexes of the Christian life. The progress of the worship service compresses into a compact hour or so of experience, compresses the spiritual rhythms of walking with Christ into an explicit experience as, as these motions train us to develop those muscles so that they become our habits. God uses worship to shape us, to love what He loves, and to submit to Him rather than centering ourselves in our personal desires. So we we have to accept that worship is not about providing the experience we we wish for, the things that we hope might happen to us, but, but about encountering God and His true character to build up the saints. Paul noted this exact thing in verse 26, right? When, when he, this, this need to not to insist on the things that we hope happens in our desired experiences, but to focus on other things that build up the saints or the things that do. He wrote, verse 26, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or interpretation. And when he wrote that, he meant that all these Corinthians, each working, expecting this, right? They're all coming with their own expectations, demands, and preferences about what should happen. They're showing up saying, let me do my thing. Here's the thing I want to do today. Let me do it. Because that's what I want from worship. I want to be on display. But that was the problem. That was the problem. He said, rather than that, let all things be done for building up. And so we must focus on God more than on what we like and what makes us feel special. We don't do freestyle worship because God loves order and because it's not good for you. It's not good for you to try to freestyle your way through the Christian life, right? As if you can spontaneously feel your way into a good spiritual condition, right? I, I, I don't want you to wake up each morning and think, how should I go through the Christian life today? Let me invent it anew each morning. No, we need to, to wake up every day and follow the pattern of praying God, confessing our sin, and believing the gospel. Basically in that order, right? That, that pattern, that reflex, those motions need to be ingrained in us as the reflexes of the, the Christian life. But that only happens if we are trained for it. And all this points to the seriousness of worship. And why the whole, the entirety of our services, right? not, not just the sermon surrounded by other things that, that we want, but the whole thing is about the majesty of God. And the whole thing is about shaping us as Christians. And that is how God works in worship. The Lord's day is the moment when the Almighty God has promised to meet His people and work amongst us. Worship is the whole thing, not just preaching. The whole thing is the distribution of the means of grace. So isn't it an amazing thing? 
that God has chosen to work in such simple, at the same time, often counterintuitive activities. And we, we find our comfort for communion with the Lord, not, not in the things that we invent, right? We find our comfort in Christ's promise that where two or three are gathered, he'll be present, right? He's, he's present in particular promised activities, right? We, we order our worship, not because we're uptight, right? We word, order our worship to manifest God's character precisely because we want to know God and God is present in this event, this time right here. We were made indeed for this. There's not a higher moment in your week. God is in this room. God is at work amongst his people here. We are designed and put on this world for this. God is here. Not We don't order our worship not for our emotional euphoria. We don't come here for our entertainment. But God is present in divinely appointed means of grace. God is present because believers are reconciled to him in Christ Jesus, whose life, death, and resurrection have freed us from this age's expectations and demands, allowing us to offer acceptable praise because Christ has forgiven our sins and made us citizens of heaven. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask that in these moments we would see the beauty of worship, that the, the gospel value of worship is, is that these, are, these moments together are not just fun times full of things we enjoy, but these are the moments when Christ is present, where two or more are gathered in his name. We are here under the promises of the Lord Jesus. We are here because we trust in him and, and long for him to move in our midst. We do the things we do, Lord, because we trust you. We do the things we do because we want to know your character as the author of peace, as the one who helps plant deeply within us the rhythms of the Christian life of praise, confession, and trust. Help us, Lord, each one of us, as we wake up tomorrow morning, make a simple application happen for each and every one of us. As we wake up in the morning tomorrow and each day this week, cause us to be reminded of a simple pattern, praise, confession, Believing the gospel. Help us to do that with the first moments of our day, when things are difficult in the day, and at the close of our days, that each day of our life we might know the beauty of our God, know the joy of being forgiven, and know the greatness of having the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And so we pray in his name. Amen.